Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Pakina Maimer, and you're listening to Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. In the first three episodes of this six-part series about science communication, we defined what science communication is and what it isn't. We looked at COVID-19 and misinformation during a time of crisis and spoke to researchers who have left the lab to work in the media. Today, we examine the fine line between science, art, education, and communication. So when I was doing my PhD, I was culturing cells during the day and culturing people in the evening in comedy clubs. I developed this app, which is called Cosmos VR, in collaboration with three wonderful people who I met at a hackathon at MIT um, around this time last year. I think the first insight into using film and the power of visuals to communicate science started when I was a PhD student because I was doing a lot of work uh, using microscopy and I was also studying vision in fruit flies. So there was an interest in microscopy and observing animals under the microscope. And I think that's what led me to understand the power of images. And I started taking those images and using them in a different context. My vision and my dream is to create uh, space camps or space clubs, um, because I believe for you to be a great scientist or a great engineer, you have to have hands-on experience. You've just heard from Alexis Gambus, a biologist and filmmaker, Helen Pilcher, a science writer and comedian, or Mila Chademori, an astrophysics researcher and budding visual artist, and Diana Cindy, a propulsion engineer who generates interest in rocket science through virtual classes in space camps. Just like many, many students in the Middle East, a lot of them don't really have a vision of their future because they're just trying to survive day by day. Around when I was 14 years old, my dad told us, all right, we're going to have to pack everything up. We have to sell all our stuff. We're going to go to America in, in a week. So we, I think we had only 10 days. So I packed up. I went to Sacramento in California and I didn't know any English. I had no idea what this is happening. We were waiting to go to America, but I, I didn't expect it to come that soon. This was Diana Cindy describing how she left her war-torn home in Iraq. She landed in the U.S. midway through her high school education, learned English, immersed herself in schoolwork, and went on to study chemical engineering at the University of California, San Diego. She soon started to develop an interest in propulsion engineering and rocketry. Leaving Baghdad opened her eyes to a whole new world, a world that she's now trying to bring to young people in the Arab world virtually through the Arabian Stargazer, a platform built around astronomy and space science. So when did the idea for that emerge? I've always been 
interested in outreach in general, but I didn't really know what kind of outreach I wanted because I'm so, so passionate about science. I want to make other people passionate about it. So I started researching a little bit on what kind of content and resources and opportunities we have for students in the Middle East. I research a little bit on YouTube and see like, okay, if I want to learn about rockets or combustion chambers or engines, if I write that same sentence in Arabic, would educational videos pop up? And the, the sad answer, unfortunately, is we, I didn't find any of these content online. My vision and my dream is to create uh, space camps or space clubs the same way that we have them here in my university or in a lot of universities, actually. Um, because I believe for you to be a great scientist or a great engineer, you go outside of your classroom and do these things. It's, you have to have hands-on experience. But then I thought, all right, if I go all out like this and create a, a whole camp that could cost so much money, and I probably have to quit my job to do it because it's, it's, a, it's a big task, then it, there's a huge chance for it to fail. So how about I test out the water and see if students are even interested in this before I can go and make it a reality. So I started the Arabian Stargazer. It's basically everything I want to do, but virtually. Just try to engage people who speak Arabic and engage them in this technical conversation and try to see what kind of things that they're interested in. Diana, while looking at your Instagram account, I see that you have games and riddles and you've organized your story highlights based on topics like online learning or how to find scholarships. And you even have Q&As with astronauts. I know you also hold virtual classes with students in the Middle East and you often talk to them about, sometimes show them how you build things. You have recurring events like Badass Women Tuesday or Unforgettable Achievements in Space Flight Sunday, which I have to confess is a bit of a mouthful, but is also very cool. Yeah. So I have a one-hour presentation that I can do in Arabic and in English, and it can it can vary from complexity. So it can be very simple, like if you're I've done it for five-year-olds and I've done it for high school students, and I talk about the basis of uh, of science and the basis of rocketry and what kind of careers you can achieve as a rocket scientist or as a as an engineer. All I need is a laptop and a screen. So um, we do a Skype call or Google Hangouts, and I explain the presentation by sharing my screen, and then I ask questions, and I see the students, and I try to engage them. I have planets that are, like, big enough for me to show on my camera, and I explain, like, this is Jupiter, this is Mars, uh, this is why we need to go to Mars, and I explain gravity through a little rocket that I have on that same planet. And I try to make it fun by engaging them and asking them questions and speaking their native language. It's, it's a big part of why I started the bilingual science communication platform, because if we want to open space for everyone, don't open it for only English speaking populations, make it for everybody. And I chose to do Arabic, hoping that other people share science in their own native language as well. How do you plan on expanding your platform? I think finding like-minded people is definitely key because uh, reinventing the wheel and making things on your own could be a little bit difficult and time-consuming. So through the page, I've met many people who want to do the same thing or are currently doing the same thing. They just need more um, uh, more people being aware about their pages or their brands. So collaborating with the scientists and engineers could 
help me make this make my brand even bigger. And in the future, I do still want to have a science camp or a space camp in the Middle East that teaches specific skill sets like 3D design or how to work with teams and how to network and all of these skill sets that can make you a great scientist. And if there's somebody out there who's listening to this and is wondering on how to do that, feel free to message me, email me, DM me. Networking and and having these, this circle of like-minded people could help you in the long run because you could work together eventually. You're listening to Working Scientist. My next guest is hilarious, professionally hilarious. She's a science writer, presenter, and a comedian with a PhD in stem cell biology, which she uses in her stand-up comedy. She's written for The Guardian, New Scientist, BBC, and Nature. She's also the author of Life Changing, How Humans Are Altering Life on Earth, in a children's book called The Pocket Book of Backyard Experiments. Listeners, meet the incredibly versatile Helen Pilcher. Many years ago, uh, too many to count now, I used to work as a scientist. I did stem cell research. So it was kind of in the early days of stem cell research. Um, we were trying to find a way of genetically manipulating stem cells. And it was really, really interesting work. And I really enjoyed it. And I loved the science. But I think along the way, as I went from PhD to postdoc, What I realised, and I think this happens to a lot of people, was that I was becoming increasingly an expert in one area and that that area was getting narrowed and narrowed. So I was an expert in one disease, in one part of the brain, in one cell, in one particular type of cell, in one protein. And, and you become really focused on one very, very narrow area. And that's, that's great, you know, that can fuel people's passion for a lifetime. But I think at some point I realised that what I was lacking was the ability to pull back, see the bigger question and ask loads of questions about the world in general. So how did the transition to comedy and then writing happen? I did a lot of clubs and I was, at the time, I was sort of doing very regular run-of-the-mill material about living in student flat shares, about drinking beer, about dating guys... But somewhere down the line, I realised that one of the things I would like to do was to fuse these two. And I thought, well, it might be fun to try and write something about science, something about science that's funny. And there are lots of brilliant people who do this now way better than me. But at the time, there wasn't really anybody out there doing this kind of like slightly odd vein of comedy. And um, it was round about the time that the Cheltenham Science Festival started, um, an absolute flagship amongst all the science festivals here. They knew they wanted their festival to be something a little bit different, but they didn't know what. And they were looking for something to finish it on the Saturday night that would be memorable. And um, the lady who was organising the festival at the time knew of me and knew that I did stand up and just sent me an email out of the blue going, um, would you come and do some stand up about science for us on the Saturday night? And so that kind of forced me to actually get my backside in gear and start writing stand-up about science. And I did that very first show with a friend of mine, Tamandra Harkness, who I write with from time to time. And we called ourselves the Comedy Research Project. And the aim was to prove scientifically uh, that science can be funny. And we do that by having 
like one audience in one room uh, listening to us, the comedians, and then a control audience uh, in an identical room next door, but with no comedians at all. And then we see which audience laughs more or less. So we can we can test this scientifically. I really, really enjoyed that. And I've sort of been doing science stand-up and science comedy writing ever since. Okay, so not your typical path to science communication, Helen. And you didn't just do stand-up comedy. You also started writing proper stories for science publications. And somehow you found a way to mix that with humor. Tell me about your books. I'm curious about one in particular. It's called Bringing Back the King, The New Science of De-Extinction. You wrote in its introduction that it was partly inspired by your kids asking questions about the prehistoric world. Uh, What were these creatures like? And could a human beat a T-Rex at arms wrestling? And um, the book, as you say, is not about arms wrestling with dinosaurs, obviously. Uh, So what is it about? It's about de-extinction, which is the ability of scientists to bring extinct creatures back to life. And I was really fascinated in how far this technology could be taken. So each chapter deals with a different king. It's called Bring Back the King. So the first chapter is um, the king of the dinosaurs, T-Rex. Then it goes to the king of the caveman, Neanderthals. And it works through all of these different kings, in inverted commas, from history, until you get to the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. And could we bring back Elvis Presley using a sample of his hair that we brought on eBay? And the answer's in the book, but for me, there was this lovely comedy narrative to this book where you've got lots of genuine, really interesting science about ancient DNA, about genetics, about the fossil record. But then the twist in the book is, you know, could you bring back Elvis Presley? And so I had these really serious conversations with really serious scientists working out how far you could take this technology and could you bring back Elvis? And if you brought back Elvis... How like Elvis or otherwise would he be? And you can have a lot of fun with that from a comedic perspective, whilst at the same time talking about the nature-nurture debate. So you can actually crowbar quite a lot of science in there. So you're doing a lot. How would you describe your work to other people or the space in which your content lives? I never really know how to describe myself. It's this sort of really bizarre mix. I, I write for a living. I write books and features and press releases and regular magazine columns. I do training. So I, I teach science communication. I teach science writing and storytelling. Um, I still do my comedy. So I do um, occasional stand-up gigs. I do a lot of talks for school audiences and for science festivals and for places that are just interested. Uh, recently in, in London here, we have um, the Cutty Sark, this amazing old maritime vessel, which is moored in the south of London. Uh, and recently, and this came about from a discussion on Twitter, we realised on Twitter, me and a, a friend of mine who's also a science comedy person, who's also called Helen, we realised that there's this rich vein in science communicators who are called Helen. And wouldn't it be great if we put on a night of, of stand-up comedy, mainly about science, purely to do with Helen. So it was a night of Helen's, basically. So the idea is that if we had it on this boat, we'd have some link to Helen of Troy and the face that launched a thousand ships. So so we recently did this lovely, lovely gig, which had comedy and it had storytelling and it had music. Uh, and it was uh, there was about nine Helens, a couple of token non-Helens, but but largely Helens. Uh, and then the other thing, which which I love that I have on my CV now. Have you have you heard of a comic book called The Beano? I don't think I have. 
This may be a uniquely British thing, and I have a feeling that it is, but in Britain, the Beano is this children's comic book, which has been going for 80 years now, and it is full of, like, really tear-away kids' characters. It's aimed at aimed at kids who are, ooh, I would say, 5 to 10, and it's full of uh, lots of jokes about farting and poo, and, uh, and it's spawned uh, really popular kids' TV shows over here in the UK. It's the comic book that everybody read when they were little, and people here are hugely fond of it. Uh, and last year, I became science advisor to the Beano, which I'm hugely proud of to have on my CV now. When I did a, a science experiment for them, a proper scientific experiment to determine what is it about farts that makes them funny. So I actually did a proper scientific experiment where I went out and researched this, did a whole load of number crunching. I wrote a mathematical formula to describe what I'd found uh, and then was the, the public face of the fart formula. So, uh, you know, an absolute... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The pinnacle to my career, I think, possibly... I first met Alex's Gambus four years ago at the Emirati edition of the Imagine Science Film Festival, the largest festival of its kind in the world. He's a TED Fellow and an assistant professor of biology at New York University, Abu Dhabi. He's also the founder of the festival. It was born in New York, then Alex's brought it to Paris and Abu Dhabi and organized satellite editions in Berlin and Warsaw. Alex also created Labusina.com, a science film platform and magazine. We caught up again recently as he was working on a new feature film that blurs the lines between fact and fiction. Son of Monarchs tells the imaginary story of a biologist who physically and emotionally transforms into a monarch butterfly as he tries to cope with traumatic childhood memories. I decided to ask Alexis about the spaces where scientists may find somewhat unfamiliar, like the world of film and entertainment. How can we carve out a space for science communication there too? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think that's exactly one of the main missions that we have is to get scientists that are more involved in in showing their work and and really not being the intermediates or advisors, be but being the ones that are at the forefront of um, of showing the work, presenting the work, talking about their work. The advice that I would give them is to not necessarily think about their work as being outreach or as something that would be supplementary to what they do, but as an active part of the research in the sense that sometimes the, the research that they're doing um, and the images or the video that they take can have another meaning. It, it can also have almost like a, a, you know, it can extend their research in some ways by presenting it in context that they otherwise wouldn't normally show them in. And I would say that the same way in which they are so focused on publishing and the importance of publishing their work, I think there should be also the same rigor in seeing ways in which their work can be presented in other types of events that are not only conferences and not only in publication, but seeing ways in which their work can be presented at film festivals, um, presented at other types of, of gatherings. And I would say that from, from the flip side, you know, if you're a curator, if you're organizing a film festival, 
we're always interested in what scientists, you know, almost direct source, what, what they have to say, what they have to show. They always have really interesting ways. And of course, they're the ones actually doing the research. And we, we run this competition as part of Imagine Science called Symbiosis, which pairs scientists and filmmakers together. And they both, you know, as a pair, they both create work together, meaning that they shoot it together. They think about how to translate the research into a narrative. And I think that's, that's one of the big pushes that I would, I would give scientists. I, I often talk to scientists who want to change careers and are maybe frustrated about being in academia or are exhausted after a PhD. And, and they often ask me, oh, how do I get into you know, outreach or how do I get into science communication? I, th I think it has to be something that is ingrained from the very beginning on how they think about their research and not as switching careers or not as, you know, I want to go from this to that, but, but really an extension to it in some way. So whenever I talk about, you know, my work, my films, I always say that in, in some ways I consider it to be research. I don't consider it to be science communication. I think the science communication is beautiful and is almost a, a byproduct of what I do, but it's not the main target. I'm, I'm really interested in, in how to bring microscopy into film, how to have people, um, the masses, experience what it is to be a scientist, what does it mean to be an immigrant scientist, which is what my latest film is about. So this is the type of device that I would give them. It's not easy because, you know, it's not necessarily a you know, an economically easy pathway, but I think the more that they show their work, the more they can get more invitations to, to do more work and maybe even commission work for, for other, you know, for galleries or other events. How did you personally develop an interest in filmmaking? Well, I've always been interested in film from, from a young age because my mom is a filmmaker. I think the first insight into using film and the power of visuals to communicate science started when I was a PhD student because I was doing a lot of work uh, using microscopy and I was also studying vision in fruit flies. So there was an interest in microscopy and observing animals under the microscope. And I think that's what led me to understand the power of images. And I started taking those images and using them in a different context, um, creating short documentaries, uh, using them as installations, as exhibit pieces, um, also doing what you could refer to as bio-art, where I would, uh, I would print some of these images and start uh, thinking about them as kind of artistic representations. And I think that's what got me interested in film. And, and when I saw the um, impact it had, showing it to other scientists, but also to a larger public, I realized that it was something that I wanted to explore further. Son of Monarchs has a leg in science. I remember you telling me that the movie showcases Mexican scientists in a way that Western cinema hasn't before, and that this is a point of pride for you and for Tenoche Huerta, the actor who portrays the scientist. So science is central to the storytelling. You also mentioned that the scientists who worked on the film were involved in different ways. Uh, some were even in front of the camera. So can you talk to me about how you weaved research into the story and how you worked with those scientists? Yeah, so, so when we were making the film, it was really important for me that the research in the film be actual research that's happening now. And there's a gene that's mentioned in the film called optics that's important for, for coloring of butterfly wings. And it's a, a master gene that's involved in creating colors in, in many different species, including, including the monarch butterfly. There's three main collaborators, one that's in um, George Washington. Um, he's a French scientist. His name is Arnaud, Arnaud Martin, and he's one of the leading butterfly scientists that works on color. There's an Indian scientist that is at MBL. His name is Nepam Patel. He works on kind of structural colors in butterflies. And, um, and yeah, we did speak to scientists at the UNAM in, in Mexico 
that also work on, on butterflies. But one of our big collaborators is the biosphere in Michoacan, the, the people that gave us permission to shoot in the sanctuaries where the butterflies arrive in millions every year. Um, we were able to shoot right where the colonies form. So just to imagine how this is, the, the butterflies arrive, there's millions and millions of butterflies that arrive um, and they cling onto these trees in these colonies and they all create almost weird shapes, like almost like monsters that are hanging from trees and it's clusters of butterflies, but millions of butterflies that are hanging from these uh, oyamel trees and hibernate for a few months. The public is not allowed to, to go there because they're hibernating and you have to be very careful. They let me go there because I was a scientist and I explained to them what the film was about and I had shot a short film before and you know it was, it was interesting because we weren't able to bring reflectors. You can't shine light onto them because they can get disturbed in their sleep. And it was a beautiful shoot because we had to be very quiet and we were filming them. And it's just one of, one of the most amazing experiences I've had shooting a film is how to document this, this world. Filmmaking isn't the only way to make science visual and immersive. And as powerful as films such as Son of Monarchs may be, they are still big projects with relatively big budgets and heavy production. Not everyone has access to that. There are ways to create visual experiences that are less time-intensive and that require less capital. Ormila Chedi-Mori's virtual reality experience is a case in point. Ormila is a pre-doctoral fellow at the Chandra X-ray Center and a PhD researcher at Yale. She blogs about science, creates YouTube videos, and recently started dabbling in VR. All for the love of cosmology and in an effort to translate her fascination with it to a wider audience. I developed this app, which is called Cosmos VR in collaboration with three wonderful people who I met at a hackathon at MIT around this time last year. And I was the only astronomer in the team. One of the other uh, members is actually an undergrad at the University of Michigan. She's incredible. And uh, one guy was a professional software guy, and then another guy was a biologist. Hackathons typically last a day or two and bring together students, young technologists, researchers, and mentors. I have taken part in the same hackathon as Ermila last year, though I never ran into her, and we didn't know each other back then. There were hundreds of us. But I know that apart from a computer or a laptop, a VR headset, a dedicated and fun team, and lots of drive, you don't need anything else to start creating. In short, you just come in with your ideas. I remember that I'd heard of Cosmos VR back then, but I never put on a headset and actually experienced it. So I asked Ermila to walk me through it. As you enter the experience, you essentially first you see a little space helmet, like an astronaut helmet, and you have a little voiceover in the background explaining uh, what's about to happen. So you are now in, um, in a virtual cosmos. All of the data for the experience was taken directly from large simulation that uh, we actually use here at my current institute at Harvard. So it's called the Illustrious Simulation. And it was essentially a simulation of the evolution of a very large volume of the universe. So hundreds of millions of light years in size. This is, you know, these are such large scales that you have mil you know, millions of galaxies in that simulation volume. Um, the simulation shows you the galaxies. So the, uh, which, so when astronomers talk about galaxies, we're just talking about the, the stellar component, the part of the galaxy that's just stars. But actually, galaxies contain a lot more than that. There's also the gas that the stars form from. And then all of that is embedded within um, a bunch of dark matter. And then individual galaxies are all connected through these um, filaments, uh, which is the cosmic web that I'm talking about. And so the Illustra simulation is, has done a really good job of this. Um, so they've modeled the evolution of stars. Stars are exploding. You know, black holes are forming. 
galaxies are colliding with each other. There's all sorts of amazing stuff happening in there. They have run this simulation um, so that the simulation actually traces the evolution of the universe over almost its entire history. We had to work with a very small subset of the data because, um, well, for one, because we developed this in two days, it was a hackathon. And secondly, just because the volume of data is really large and we, and there are still limitations to just how much information you can get into a VR engine at this point. So there's definitely a lot more that we can do in that area. Um, but for now, what happens is you've entered the simulation, you see this astronaut helmet, and then um, you, you're basically told, you know, welcome to the cosmos, um, put on your helmet, and you'll be transported into intergalactic space. And then you can use the controllers in your hand um, to sort of move in different directions and then fly in that direction to see how structure changes. Uh, you can always turn around any which way. You can also use the controller to switch between uh, views of the stars and the intergalactic gas and the dark matter. And I think that part particularly was most important to me because people always ask me what dark matter is and how we know that it exists and what does it mean for the universe as a whole. And dark matter really is the glue that, you know, holds the universe together. It's the source of most of the gravity in the world. And so, um, and so I wanted to explain how that's visible and how we astronomers infer its position based on uh, what we can see, which is we can see the galaxies, we can see the stars, and we can see the gas. And I wanted to show the sort of relationship that exists between these various components um, to explain why astronomers are so confident about where the dark matter lies in the universe. Like any form of science communication, comedy, VR, fiction, or educational hands-on videos, all of the above still require their creator to be careful about how they tell their story. One advice Ermilla gives is to always remember how much of your knowledge is specialized. Not everything is obvious to your audience. Another advice is to create a safe environment for feedback and questions. Next week, this podcast puts the spotlight on institutions and agencies that support outreach, run competitions, and organize conferences. I talk to scientists and researchers who have received sponsorship and support to communicate their work in inventive ways. I talk to those who get off the beaten track to raise awareness. One scientist promoted his PhD research about macular degeneration while doing a 10-kilometer run, completely blindfolded. But that's the story for next time. Until then, I'm Pakina Maimer. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. 
A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW.